Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring human initiated contact experience. My guest is Dr. Joseph Burks, who is an internal medicine physician, board certified. He has also authored a chapter in the recent book, Beyond UFOs, on uh, medical healings associated with UFO phenomena. Welcome, Joseph. It's a pleasure. It's great to be with you. You began your career as as a doctor with a strong emphasis on social justice. Yes, that that is correct. I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up in Manhattan uh, during the 1950s. It was a time of great uh, turmoil and, and struggle. My mom, who was a, a peace and social justice activist and trade union movement, uh, took me around to a lot of the demonstrations that were going on. When I was five, we went to the march to Washington, 1955, I think it was. And uh, there was also atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons at that time. And uh, just to re, uh, remind the audience, the United States and the Soviet Union were in a competition to see who could detonate the biggest bombs uh, in terms of megatons equivalent of explosive of TNT. And so the, the Russians, I think, won the prize because somewhere in the early 1960s, they detonated a weapon that was billed at 62 million mega, 62 million tons of TNT equivalent, but it was actually off the chart. It probably was closer to a hundred million tons of TNT. I remember those years and the Chinese were also <laughs> they were, they were, they were. And so what was happening was that radioactive material, strontium 90, uh, cobalt, uh, iodine-131, were being blasted into the atmosphere in a kind of radioactive plume. These uh, radiation was spreading all over the planet, getting on the farmlands that was used for cattle, dairy, and the children were developing uh, signs of radiation exposure because their deciduous teeth, the baby teeth, were showing strontium-90. So, uh, led by a famous pediatrician, Dr. Spock, who wrote a very popular book about child rearing uh, way, way back in the late 40s, I think it was. Let, let me just interject for one second, because I met Dr. Spock. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, like yourself, am a child of, of that era. And uh, one day he came to speak at Berkeley, and I was a long-haired, hippie college student uh, wearing a tank top with my armpits showing. And I raised my hand and I said, Dr. Spock, I want you to know I was a Dr. Spock baby. And he looked at me and he said, Will you tell your mother I'm proud of her? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That's, uh, I never had a chance to meet the gentleman, but I was in the demonstrations that were uh, organized primarily by women all over the world, and their worldwide effort was successful in that uh, 1962 uh, test, uh, test ban treaty was signed between the former Soviet Union and the U.S., and they stopped atmospheric testing, which was a really good thing for children and other growing creatures. Yeah. So, so I was also involved with the civil rights I mentioned, and uh, of course when the Vietnam War 
came on. I was part of a number of students for Democratic Societies, SDS, mm-hmm. although the joke was that it really stood for Students for the Destruction of Society. That's not true. Uh, we were uh, hoping to stop the war, mm-hmm. which eventually did come to the end in 1975. And as a uh, young doctor, at least in training, uh, in Boston, I uh, traveled uh, from Boston to the United Farm Workers Clinics, and I helped recruit medical personnel for their uh, effort. And then I was also active in what was called occupational health and safety movement, where we were trying to identify workplace hazards and working with trade unions to make the workplace in America safer. So these were all the things that I was doing. Uh, and when I finished my medical training and I got to actually have a real job and I helped my wife raise a family, I got involved with Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, remember, this was during the Cold War. It was a period of great strife. People didn't know if an accidental nuclear war could occur. There were accidents that were happening. Nuclear bombs were dropped on occasion. It was a so-called uh, broken arrow. And there were all, all kinds of fears that uh, during a period of increased tension, a nuclear war might break out. So, so I got involved with this uh, anti-nuclear physicians group. We traveled to the former Soviet Union. I happened to speak Russian because I studied it in college. And we got physicians from both sides of the Iron Curtain to work together to educate leaders. And uh, it was Brezhnev was in power, and then it was finally Gorbachev. And then also American leaders as well, representatives of our movement, met Dr. Helen Caldicott. She was a famous pediatrician from Boston. She met with uh, uh, President Reagan. So... Um, we were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985, and I happened to meet uh, Dr. John Mack, not in his capacity as an investigator of a contact, but as uh, an anti-nuclear activist. For the younger doctors, he was a kind of hero of ours. So you were, in effect, a Nobel recipient? Uh, through the international organization, yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. Congratulations. I also had a radio show on uh, listener-supported KPFK, which is the sister station of KPFA. You're familiar with yes, that. Yes, indeed. And uh, the slogan of our doctor's movement was, we must prevent what we cannot cure. There is no cure for nuclear war. Uh, and uh, the, the more ironic uh, slogan was, one nuclear detonation could ruin your whole day. So, so we carried that message all over the world, uh, and we were very gratified to see that, uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, eventually imploded, and uh, the hair trigger alert and the conflict that existed between capitalism and communism diminished, uh, and we thought we had played some small role in that. We were happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's very significant and a good launching pad for how you met Dr. John Mack. That's right. And so what happened was uh, I, I focused on my medical work and helping my wife raise uh, our two healthy children. And uh, it was, uh, it was a, a great relief to know that the pressure uh, of being uh, in a country that's involved in the nuclear arms race was no longer in effect. And that was, and, uh, so in, I never really had much interest in UFOs. Uh, a friend of the family w- ha- uh, 
he was very interested in the subject. And as a little boy, he used to tell me about Long John Nebel, who had a radio talk show. But I, my interest was science fiction. I liked Star Trek. I was excited about the space race. And before I decided to become a doctor, I actually thought, would be nice to be an astronomer. Uh, and uh, so um, when uh, the nuclear arms race was over and uh, the I was no longer very active in the peace and social justice causes. I decided one day that I needed a hobby. And uh, so I went down to the local library, and whether I remembered my friend from childhood uh, who exposed me to the subject of UFOs or not, I can't recall. But the librarian said, well, what would you like to read about? And I just says, oh, I don't know. Got anything on UFOs? Mm-hmm. Just, just like that. So she took out a book. It was uh, by Ed and Francis Walters, The Amazing Gulf Breeze Sightings. So it actually showed pictures of what were purported to be flying saucers and was about amazing sightings that occurred. And I read this book and then another book. Finally, after about a year, I got pretty interested in the subject and I went to uh, my first UFO meeting where I saw a tall bearded doctor. I was working emergency room at that time and so was this physician. His name was Stephen Greer. Many in your audience may have heard of him. He had developed a technique which he claimed would attract UFOs to secure research sites. He showed videotapes of an encounter he had. This was now June 1992 and he showed videotapes of an encounter he had March of the same year, 1992, at Gulf Breeze. So I knew that this was a hot spot. And the videotapes were showing him using his thought projection, meditation protocols, and actually attracting and catching on camera, not one, not two, but at least three of the typical Gulf Breeze UFOs with the power ring underneath, pictures of which I had seen the previous year when I read Ed and Francis Walter's book. Mm-hmm. So, I, I was trained in the techniques, and I was uh, let loose to form my own team. Pretty soon, I had a very group of talented investigators. It was strange the way the synchronicities occurred. We had four members of our team who happened to meet by chance at that UFO workshop that Stephen Greer gave, and uh, or maybe it was not chance. So we had three physicians on our team. There's also a 747 jet pilot, Captain Joe Vallejo, working for United. And uh, he was a great asset for, for the team because he had studied the esoteric literature. He knew the stories of contactees from Europe and also from South America. He was Cuban. And uh, as soon as we started going into the field, we got manifestations of the UFO phenomena. Golden globes appeared, uh, mysterious lights one night appeared on a ridge line. And these were very sophisticated lights, far more complex than what we had. Back in those days, we had these clunky uh, 50,000 candle power, it was you know, 500,000 p- candle power um, batteries that were um, I mean, they were halogen lanterns that were driven by these big old-fashioned lead batteries. And when you signaled at the UFO or anything, there would be uh, a period of time in which the light would build up and then fade out. It would happen in about a second. Um, and so when these uh, mysterious lights appeared on the ridgeline, and we were operating out of the Santa Susana Pass, adjacent to the Department of Energy site, 
that had its own history of UFO encounters, which I subsequently found out about years later. But we were not aware of that connection. That Santa Susana Pass, where is that? This is in Chatsworth. This is in the northwest corner of Los Angeles County, uh, between the San Fernando Valley and the Simi Valley. And there's a highway that goes through that, 118. And uh, so we were in a wilderness state park, or adjacent to a wilderness state park called Rocky Peak. And uh, so we're out there doing our protocols, and not much is happening at that point, so it's getting late. One of my coworkers, uh, uh, who was the respiratory therapist in her hospital, Shirley Jones, she left early. She had an early shift the next day, and so she walked down the trail to our cars that were pa- parked in the pass. And uh, she was gone, and as we were descending, and these two very interesting lights appeared on a ridge line in Rocky Peak State Park. And there's no housing, there's no running water, uh, and yet one light was very powerful uh, and had many sophisticated functions. It could fire a strobe-like uh, blast at us on and off very fast. It could fade in and out. And one of the lights was directed at us, and the other lights were beaming towards the southeast across the San Fernando Valley. Um, so it was kind of ironic in a way because as part of the protocols, we were not sure how we would react to manifestations of contact. So we would designate an area that we called our safe area. So if someone got really excited or upset because the UFOs might be coming closer and we had the wild ambition that we could actually get perhaps a landing or a boarding, never happened for us individually. I mean, for us as a group, but people individually had been describing such things. So we were getting through our um, safe area when all of a sudden this powerful light on the ridge line flashed at us. One of my coworkers had received a, a mental impression of a sequence of signaling that he thought would be effective, and he suggested that I use it too to signal out this powerful light that it was strobe, strobing at us. And it was like this flash. Wait three seconds, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, then flash, flash, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, flash, 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 three. And so I did it once and didn't seem to get much of a response. The second time something really uncanny happened. As soon as I made the initial flash and I released my finger from, I hate to say the name of the light, it was called the light bazooka. Mm-hmm. And here we're trying to engage extraterrestrials in a peaceful yeah. encounter, and I'm using the light bazooka to signal at them. But as soon as the light had started to fade, even before it was out, I got an immediate strobe uh, from the light on the ridge line. Waited three seconds, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, flash, flash. And again, the glow of that second flash was fading, and immediately I got flash, flash in return, strobe, strobe. Waited three seconds, three blasts from light bazooka, and again, bing, bing, bing. It was almost as if there was a, a connection between my finger uh, and the light. Uh, it was about a thousand feet away, 1200 feet on the ridge line of Rocky Peak State Park. Well, that was pretty exciting. I, I couldn't quite convince myself it was a UFO because it was on the ridge line. Uh, but I decided we're going to send a reconnaissance team up into that remote area and check out where those lights came from. 
I mean, it could be another group of people trying to do the same thing you were trying to do. Or I was thinking there's some crazy kids who were imitating us, or I, I didn't know what to expect. Well, uh, a day or two later, I'm in the hospital, and Shirley Jones, the respiratory therapist who was working with us, um, she said, you know, I had an incredible sighting after I left you guys. I said, well, let me tell you about mine. And she said, no, no, you got to hear this first. As she was driving her Chevy Astro van, and she had left about a half an hour uh, in front of us, she was driving southeast across, across the San Fernando Valley. What happened was, all of a sudden, her van starts shaking violently. Uh, and she and I both spent time in New York. She said it was like going over the potholes in New York. You know, well, the roads were pretty bad then. Or she thought she had gone over road, railroad tracks, something like that. So it was late at night, you know, Los Angeles is a tough, pretty tough area. She's a single woman, you know, alone. She looked around, it seemed safe. She got out of her vehicle. There were no railroad tracks, there were no potholes, but she looked up to the Santa Susana Pass where she had just left, and the light that had been pointing at across the San Fernando Valley was signaling at her. So you have this kind of high strangeness event, well, psychokinetic powers to make the car stop and to have her turn around and see the light. So we were on a roll. We All kinds of unusual events occurred while we were operating in that vicinity. I did not know at that time the history of the Department of Energy site. And perhaps I can explain what was going on there in the years and the decades before that made this spot a UFO uh, hotspot. How interesting. Now, I know there was a book written called, if I remember, The Tohunga Canyon Contacts. Is yes. that related? It's on the other side of the San Fernando Valley. We were on the northwestern corner, and the Tohunga Contacts are on the far eastern I corner. See. But yeah, there's a lot of activity. Well, it's a big metropolitan area, so it has a you know, big history of UFOs. With many hills and mountains and ravines and, and valleys in there where things might occur, uh, not observed by the general population. So let me tell you about that, what I learned about the Department of Energy side. Of course, this, it was a um, high-security facility. They had developed some of the technology for Star Wars there, and then that was the uh, program to develop anti-nuclear missile technology, supposedly shoot down defensive weapons against nuclear uh, attack. And so um, they also tested the space shuttle engines back in the late 60s, early 70s, so you could see the, the light all across the San Fernando Valley when these enormous engines were being tested. Uh, but what I didn't know was that it was um, also a place where UFO sightings happened. Now, fast forward 2006, uh, from 1992 to 2006, I'm in my emergency room. I was called the Medical Officer of the Day, MOD. I'd admit all patients to the hospital. And an African-American gentleman was coming in to be admitted to the hospital. He had a kidney problem. And uh, because of my past history in occupational health and safety, I was one of the few doctors that took occupational histories. So I asked him what his job was. And he said, I, I used to work for the government. You know, I'd been around and... When you work for the post office, I work for the post office. If you work for uh, the NIH, you know you work for the NIH. But when someone says they work for the government, I thought maybe he was doing something in security. So I got my interest. 
And after I finished examining him, I said, I'd just like to ask you some questions about a hobby of mine, UFOs. Have you ever had a UFO sighting? And this is what he did. We're in an exam room, very small, nobody else there, the door is closed. He looked at me intensely and then he did this, looking around to make sure there was nobody there. And then he said, in 1989, before he retired from the Department of Energy, he had a job as an operations engineer. And what that job was, was to keep the plant in operation. He did plumbing, carpentry, electronics, all that stuff. It's, it's a very responsible job because the, that Department of Energy site in the Santa Susana Pass had a nuclear reactor that required coolant. And there was also an accident there once where they had a partial meltdown and there was a plutonium release. Oh. And, the, and the place was cited for occupational health and safety uh, dangers that they posed. So he's working in his control room when all of a sudden the alarms go off. It's in the afternoon, high desert, it's hot outside. And there's a sudden loss of water in the, one of the, the tr enormous three-foot transite pipes that are taking water from these enormous towers above the base down the hillside to the various labs. And because there was, you know, a reactor on the planet, I guess they were concerned about, you know, labs not having coolant. So he and his uh, buddy knew the routine. They got machetes and weed whackers, and they followed these enormous three-foot transite concrete pipes down the mountainside, staring clear, staying clear of rattlesnakes and that sort of thing. And as they followed the pipe down, they came to a clearing, and they saw what was a geyser. The pipe had been cut. And he went over there, to look at the place where it was cut, and he expected maybe some boulders had fallen down on it. No. The pipe was cut clean, two edges, as if a power tool or some kind of laser had cut the pipe, and the water was shooting up like a geyser. And he and his buddy look around, and less than 200 feet away, 20 feet off the ground, is a 30-foot metallic disc that's spinning. And uh, very surprised, to say the least. He gets on the squawk box and calls security, and they tell him, well, don't approach the craft, which was the last thing he would want to do because he was and his buddy were very frightened. And after a while, the UFO turned uh, at a slight angle and with a roar uh, took off and, and was disappeared within seconds. And the next day, Typically, the suits came from Washington, D.C. He couldn't remember what intelligence agency they were from, but they debriefed them, and that was the end of the story. So all this was happening in the years prior to our actually going up and doing contact work adjacent to the uh, to the Department of Energy site. So, so this was part of these adventures that I had for many years. Uh, the following year... Uh, a young man surfaced in my emergency room. I'll call him Misha. He grew up in Belarus. He had emigrated because he was Jewish from the former Soviet Union. He claimed that while he was in Russia, he had a, uh, I was it a vivid dream? I think it was a, a very vivid dream where he imagined that he was emigrating to the United States. He would get a job in a healthcare setting and he would do contact work with a tall bearded Jewish doctor. And he claimed that when he got to the United States and got a job as an EKG tech and went to work in the emergency room, 
I was the man in his dream. He found you. He found me. It's a nice story. I can't verify it. But I can tell you that when that uh, young man joined our team, my contact, uh, my personal psychic ability took a great boost. And it was already uh, uh, doing quite well. Yes, I think so. But remember, it was a team effort, so we had uh, multiple uh, people sending a signal of welcome and trying to attract the UFOs. I can't take credit for that. But I can say that it was uh, with, when this young man joined the team, uh, we had a good track record before. Uh, every other field investigation, we had definite evidence of contact. Not all of them, but many. When he joined the team, every single time we went out in the field with him, there was a manifestation. Sort of along the lines of what I heard you talk about earlier, the PK man, the, um, Ted Owen, who was also one of these special individuals who could attract UFOs. So I remember the first time we went out into the field with Misha, I had my first what I call telepathic override. Mm. I was in a state of relaxation, uh, meditating, uh, and at the level of knowledge, I knew that a UFO was going to appear at 2 a.m. from the northwest, and there would be one. Because we had been alerted that this kind of communication was possible, I then shared that information with my co-workers. I remember saying something like, um, Showtime is 2 o'clock. I'll take the first shift resting. So I was working a lot of emergency room shifts at that time. I was tired. and I, Staying up in all-night vigils was no easy task. So I rested, and sure enough, they woke me up at 10 minutes to 2, and right on the money, as I had been informed, uh, a red glowing UFO appeared in the northwest sky. It flew past us and then changed direction slightly and shot across to the east at a tremendous speed. This was in Joshua Tree National Monument, okay, which was our field laboratory for about four years. Wonderful place, many sightings. Yeah. So what I didn't mention was that combined with that heads up, I also, at the uh, in a kind of watching a video in my mind, I got actually to see the UFO that was coming towards us, I was able to uh, look inside the craft and see the beings. I was able to sense some kind of relationship they had with a command vehicle. It was a small disc, 30 feet across. And they had some kind of relationship with a, uh, a larger, in my mind's eye, I saw it as a cylindrical-shaped UFO oh, a mile across. And th there was a, a dialogue going between the alleged crew, could be fantasy, and the, the, the command in the uh, vehicle out in space, and they were only going to come by for a flyby. Although the beings on the craft, what emotion I got from them was exuberance, excitement. They wanted to land and have a, a little uh, party with us. So I can vouch for the heads up because it, it accurately predicted whether there was actually a crew there and a command vehicle. I, I used to say that my channel's material in a dollar uh, could get me a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But you began experiencing other downloads of, of this nature, where oh, yes. information would just come to you. Yes, and uh, some of it was quite poignant. Um, one, one particular <laughs> female being that I saw in my mind's eye, I got the feeling um, I had known her for a long time. Uh, it was explained to me at the level of knowledge that uh, in these kinds of contexts, because men are often very frightened, uh, 
they um, they have a female ET to deal with them, and they also harbor some romantic emotion in the human subject as a way of overcoming fear. So I remember in my mind's eye standing very close to her and liking it a lot and uh, holding my breath. Mm -hmm. So so she explained to me what their mission was, uh, that they had traveled a long time to get here. It was a beautiful story. And for many years I had trouble sharing this powerful emotional experiencing without tearing up. It's not so different from the sort of thing reported by Whitley Strieber in Communion, this emotional connection. Yes. Yes, that was there. And it it was a very practical arrangement uh, so they could work with us without being so terrified. Uh, so I did that work for five years. We had many more sightings. Uh, we never did, uh, we are never able to get a landing and a boarding, but other contactees within uh, other networks like Mission Rama uh, were able to facilitate landings and boardings. Uh, Sixto Paswells was the one of the prominent people in the Peruvian contactees that got started in 1974. Mission Rama is a Peruvian organization. That's right. It's it's not so much of an organization. It, it's more of a network, a spiritual <laughs> movement. And uh, I got to beat some of their heavy hitters. Uh, there was a gentleman named Fernando Lamaco, who was a retired dental surgeon who had emigrated in 1989 or 1990 uh, from Peru because of the Civil War, and his daughter was actually... Uh, they, these armed guerrillas tried to abduct her, and he was able to stop it, And uh, but he was so frightened. They were abducting professional people to hold them for ransom and their families. So he was allowed to emigrate to the United States, and he also had research site where they were interacting with UFOs near Mount Shasta. So over the subsequent years, I got to do field work with them as well and meet some of their very high-powered people. Mm -hmm. Now, Mount Shasta is a site also uh, known to have a long history of, uh, I'll call it non-human contacts and and UFOs and a a variety of occult esoteric organizations located there. There's an enormous mythology that has built up around Mount Shasta. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is true. Uh, One contact uh, activist uh, who worked with Rama uh, described uh, receiving an actual invitation to board spacecraft. Um, and uh, he was informed at the level of knowledge that um, one of the conditions was that you can come on board, but there's no assurance you'll be returned. And this I had heard from other contact activists. I'm not sure why that condition was put forward. I, I suspect it was kind of a trust thing, where if you're actually fearful enough where you're putting conditions, then you haven't reached a stage a stage of unconditional love that they were striving to achieve with the contact human contact teams, and that would make you not eligible to go on board. So they, I had no doubt that we would all be returned. Uh, I, that was not something I, I was ever fearful of. So he was offered this, but the other person on his team who had been selected had a 10-year-old child, and she could not, in all good faith, uh, offer to go on board without the reassurance she would be returned. So you worked with this network for quite a while. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, so uh, the, the saucer, which had been hovering, uh, this happened at Mount Shasta, yeah. where he was given the invitation, then departed. Um, but he was a very special person, and I was working with him, and I figured, well, he got the offer. Maybe if I hang out with him, I might be able to have such an experience myself. Uh, that was your interest. That's my interest, yeah, yeah, to go and do field work with this individual who had, shall we say, friends in high places, mm -hmm. and I could have that unique, uh, either an onboard experience or at least uh, psychically have memories of onboard. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, did you know Donald Keyes? I don't believe Because... Um, I can share this with you. Uh, Donald Keyes was a, a man I met. He founded an organization that would be along the same lines as your social activism. It was called Planetary Citizens. Oh. Back in the 1970s. He was also very active before that in the World Federalist Association. Oh, I've heard, yes. Yeah. And he worked with the United Nations as a, uh, and the NGOs there. He was a, a speechwriter, as I recall, for Uthant, the Secretary General of the United Nations. And he worked with the Lucas Trust, an esoteric organization, uh, promoting the Alice Bailey, uh, channeled materials. And they had a connection with the United Nations. He moved to Mount Shasta. And uh, he gave me, I have an unpublished copy of his memoir, his diaries, in which he claimed at Mount Shasta to have had many visionary experiences. I don't think they were physical, but in, they were so real to him, he described them as if they were physical, of meeting, he called it like the galactic command, and traveling in spaceships to around the galaxy. They considered him as the president of planetary citizens, sort of an ambassador from the, the planet Earth to the Galactic Federation. That's that's quite. I knew of the work of the World Federalists from my work in the peace movement. So, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you supply that important piece of peace movement as well as contact movement history. Yeah, I think there's probably a, a great deal of overlap, and certainly Donald Keyes was a uh, instrumental person in in both of those worlds. So, on one occasion, I believe the intelligence behind the phenomena saved my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe more, but the one for sure. Oh. I'd like to share that with you because it's related to uh, my experience with this heavy hitter who was offered a boarding on Mount Shasta, which he declined. So, um, I was working with another contact activist. I'll call her uh, uh, Jeannie Krieger, not her real name. And <clears throat> Jeannie and I were working with this Rama heavy hitter. And we decided in the San Jose area, which is where he lived, we were going to find a, a secure fieldwork site where we could invite a landing and a boarding. San Jose, California. San Jose, California, yes. And so uh, we were driving up uh, to a, a county park, which is located in the foothills of the coastal range. And it was uh, looking for a research site where we wanted to find a place that was relatively close, but relatively secure. And so we were driving on a, a mountain road, just two lanes. It was paved, but there was no shoulder on one side because there was a drop-off a cliff of about 100 feet. And then on the other side, there was no shoulder because the rock face came right down to the road with no room for a shoulder. And we're driving up on this circuitous path, 
And on the straightaways, we can go maybe 25 miles an hour around the curves, 15 miles an hour. As we're going up, I'm starting to feel very uneasy. I don't know what it is. Jeannie was driving a Volkswagen Bug, not the biggest and safest car in the world. And at one point, she says, we've got to get off the road. I've just got a, she called it a telepathic override. I don't recall whether it was a voice in the head or just a knowingness. But we're looking for a place to pull off the road because I'm feeling very uneasy too. And uh, we slow down. Finally, we find a little alcove in the rock face. And we could just barely get our Volkswagen off the road. There was no room to stand. We had to actually press our bodies against the rock face. And we waited a minute, two minutes, and then the roar of engines. These two testosterone-toxic young men driving muscle cars were drag racing down the mountain, neck and neck. On the straightaways, they're hitting 40, 45 miles an hour, and they're going around the curves far faster than it was safe. And they ta- were taking up both lanes in a, in a road that was one way, one lane, one way, the other lane. We could not hear them till they were almost on top of us because the circuitous path of the road caused the sound to be bouncing back and not going down the road. I suspect we would have been killed if we had continued on the road. And so I think it's helpful to have friends in in high places. (laughs) Saved by telepathy. So that, that describes some of the exciting experiences I had. But one of the most curious ones, where high strangeness abounded, had to do with an investigation our team did in, it was uh, December of 1993. Now, the previous month, Misha and I had had a prolonged interactive experience with a number of UFOs. They were jumpers tiny points of light that were jumping up and down. And and we were in the Queen Valley again, Joshua Tree. And it was kind of a a lot of fun because uh, there was a sense of merriment about this encounter that I I never had before or since. Um, We would draw triangles in the sky with our light bazooka. And the UFO, would uh, taking little jumps, would form a triangle. And then we would draw a circle in the sky. And this one jumper would, taking little jumps, ding, 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 strobing very rapidly would make a circle. At one point, I got very emotional, you know. And I imagined I would sing them a song. And I sang uh, my version of the United Nations hymn, with whose verses are, you know, very dramatic. As sure as the sun meets the morning and rivers go down to the sea, a new age for mankind is dawning. Our children shall live proud and free. And then United Nations are in march. Well, I changed the words around. I said United Planets are in march with flags unfurled. I wasn't sure if they had flags where they're coming. But forever, forever work for lasting peace, a free new world. I got to the, through the first stanza and something I didn't expect happened. They turned their lights off. And my coworker was laughing. He said, they don't like your singing very much, <laughs> Dr. Parks. <laughs> and so what he did was he, he was a former Russian military. He knew how to put his fingers in his mouth and whistle. And he whistled and they turned their lights back on. So that was, you know, quite merry. And then later on, we had cameras. We wanted to videotape them. But because previous teams had described that when they, when you try to turn on the cameras, the uh, intelligence behind the phenomena acts as if it were camera shy. They, you turn on the cameras and they turn off their lights. 
So we had argued about whether we we're going to turn the light, our cameras on. We didn't want to chase away the UFOs. So finally we decided, okay, we're going to turn on our cameras. As soon as we turned on the camera, they turned off their lights. Now our encounter had been going on for 45 minutes, an hour. Uh, and we were crestfallen because it was now three in the morning, but we wanted to, you know, party with these guys some more. So Misha walks out, uh, towards where they had last been seen. Of course, we're in the middle of the Queen Valley. It's cold, 4,000 foot elevation, November 1993. And he makes a little speech in his Russian accent that he says, we are doing this for peace not to sell picture to National Geographic. This is my, I studied Russian as a college, in college. So he says, we, you are our friends and we want to show these films to our friends and then, and we not do it for money. So please turn on your lights. And sure enough, after he gave his silly speech, they turned on their lights again. So this went on for about an hour and a half. It was now, getting to be pretty late, about 4 or 5 in the morning. Sun was coming up. Uh, there had been a storm the previous night, but strangely we were in this little Queen Valley. We'd seen the storm front go by to the north with flashes of lightning. And, and uh, But in our little Queen Valley, um, it was perfectly dry. But the wind was picking up, and I saw Misha do something that I didn't expect at all. We got to be pretty late, and... Um, he basically said to them, uh, you know, it's time for you to go. <laughs> he, he says, you know, the marine base is 29 miles or 20. It's very close. And they have gunships and fighter bombers. So please leave. It's not safe. And sure enough, one of the objects that actually had come in very close, less than a mile, and I could see it through binoculars as a half moon glowing like a fluorescent light. This is, it was quite dazzling, so bright it hurt your eyes. And we may have even gotten sunburned at night, which was strange uh, as well. Uh, he, that craft and the other, if, the, if it was a craft, versus some kind of visual display or holographic technology, then, dis, then they just flew off. So it was quite, a, quite an education in terms of interplanetary uh, people-to-people diplomacy. Now you mentioned earlier that you also experienced missing time on one occasion. And that's right. Now, the following month, we were very excited. We told all our co-workers uh, that this amazing encounter had happened. You mean co-workers at the hospital? No, at our team. I'm sorry, co-workers in the team. Yes. We had a contact team. Yes. It was made up of medical workers, but also Joe Vallejo, I mentioned, 747 pilot, United. Preston Dennett, who's a very prominent UFO uh, reporter, He's written a book on UFO healings, and we actually co-chaptered, uh, we co-authored a chapter in the book Beyond UFOs oh, Together. Yes. On, on, He's on, your co-author of that chapter. That's right. Uh-huh. So, so we shared our adventure and our excitement, and we had hoped that they would join us. However, the next time we went out in the field was the day after Christmas, and um, it was cold. And Southern Californians believe the Earth is coming to an end, when it drops below 40 degrees and there's a wind. So it was hard to get some of those uh, Los Angelinos out into the field uh, in cold weather. So he and I both went out to the field together, just the two of us, although we prefer to have a, a, a three people to corroborate each other's findings. And um, 
The site was dead. We got out to the Little Queen Valley, and when you're anticipating contact, there's a kind of electricity in the air, just a sense of excitement. And when events are not going to unfold, you don't feel that excitement. The excitement is, is almost like awareness of another mind, which you might call the, uh, awareness of consciousness or awareness of presence. The way we explain that um, sense of awareness is if you're ever playing uh, hide-and-go-seek with you know someone when you're a kid, and you walk into a room, and there's not a sound, and you don't see anything, there's no giggling, but you know you feel there's someone in the room other than yourself. So this time, that presence of consciousness was, was not there. So after a couple of hours, nothing's happening, it's overcast. Uh, Misha, who had a beautiful young Ukrainian fiancé waiting for him in his apartment back in Los Angeles, he's got ants in his pants and he wants to go. We got to go. We got to go. So we pack up our gear. It's 4.30. We drive uh, into Joshua Tree. Uh, we're very careful not to go beyond the speed limit because the local police set up speed traps for people from out of town. So we were going, you know, 25 miles an hour through the town. There was a strange uh, vehicle that passed us. It was a old Toyota sports car that was modeled after a British sports car called the Triumph. And it, it was a car that was 25, 30 years out of date. It was, you know, it had been built in the 60s or early 70s. And so it just slowly moved past us. It wasn't speeding. And, but that sort of cued me into this, this may be important because people have described close encounters where vehicles that are out of date somehow, sometimes driven by men in black appear. So we watched. We drove into a rest stop. We gassed up the car. And then we started down Highway 62. Highway 62, uh, there's a stretch of road that's um, snake-like, serpiginous. Um, there's just a concrete divider, and it's in a ravine. And the, the, the ravine, the hillside, comes right down to the highway. There's not much of a shoulder. So we're in this six or seven mile section that goes from the Morongo Valley down to Palm Springs on Highway 62. And we're going back and forth. And uh, Misha turns around and he says, I think there's somebody behind us. And I go, we go around another turn. I look behind, hey, there's nobody there. And then he says again, no, no, there's somebody behind us. I can see it. He sees two headlights. And I turn around as we go around another curve. There's no car. What he didn't share with me at that moment and I'm not sure he was telling the truth, but this is what he told me, was that he saw a third light appear between the, th the, the headlights of the car, the supposed car that was following us, and then he claimed he saw it lift off the road, sort of a la Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Richard Dreyfus. I'm glad he didn't tell me that. Because as we're emerging from the ravine, we now can look out at the uh, San Jacinto Mountain, 15 miles away. It's a 10,000-foot granite mountain. goes way up. It's towering over Palm Springs, and closer to us was Desert Hot Springs. And as we're emerging from the ravine, I'm saying, gee, isn't this strange? Day after Christmas, all these private pilots, all these little lights are flying around uh, above us. You know, And I made up this story, oh, they're probably wealthy people who are flying at night to keep their uh, night license, pilot's license. And as we're emerging from the ravine, 
I see this hill, which we had passed many times before, but this hill now seemed gigantic. It was maybe 50 or 100 feet high, but now it looked like it was the size of a skyscraper. Look, it was two, 300 feet up, maybe more. And on top of it was a red light. We had never seen that red light before. So there hadn't been much action that evening, and I had my signal lantern. So I figured, oh, I'll signal at that. It's probably just a beacon that to warn pilots. I turned my light bazooka, flashing towards the light on top of the hill. And as the 500,000 power, candle power lantern beam penetrated the hillside, I expected to see a, a reflection of rocks and see some shrap chaparral and uh, you know lots of sand on the hillside. No, the image was of mist. And as the beam plowed as the beam plowed into the mist, it, it, the mist dissolved. It was shooting into nothingness. And I couldn't explain that, but I was tired and we had a long night. It just seemed very strange. And then I moved, looked off to my left, which was towards uh, D- Desert Hot Springs and uh, the, the cities there. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing this brilliant white light coming very fast towards up. And I said, oh, it's probably some millionaire with his Learjet, or maybe. But so I figured there's not going to be scheduled flights at 6 in the morning, the day after Christmas. And I, the engine of the car was still running. The window had been down because I'd been signaling through the window at what I thought was a beacon on the top of the hill. And all of a sudden, Misha is saying, close the window, Joe. It's freezing. Close it. Which is strange because he was from Belarus. He was heavy set, big guy, 50, 20, 30 pounds overweight. And he, unlike the Southern Californian field investigators, never complained of the cold. And here he is complaining now. He's freezing. I thought that's strange. So I rolled up the window and then we, we ignored the fact that we had stopped by the side of the road and the vehicle that we expected was going to pass us never did. It was like completely out of our mind. I felt drugged and disoriented. And as we started to drive, uh, and there's a seven-mile drive from the, that exit of, from the ravine to the superhighway 10, where we take back to Los Angeles, uh, I heard the sound of the engine. I looked to the east, and I could see like embers from a fire, red glow as the sun was starting to rise in the east. I heard the sound of the engine, and all of a sudden, there was a break in the continuity of my consciousness where the sun was now quite high in the sky and at 60, 70 miles an hour, it should have only taken us six minutes to get to the Highway 10. And we were still on Highway 62. So this was very strange. When we got home, I looked at the clock. It had taken us over four hours to drive what should have been much shorter because there was no traffic. And at one point, he actually was doing 90 miles an hour. There was a day after Christmas. Highway Patrol was opening their presents or whatever. And so a couple of days later, he said to me, I think, Joe, we had missing time. And I said, you're right. And he had spontaneous recall of what he imagined was an onboard experience. Mm. And I didn't remember anything. Mm. So so that was missing time that happened in the course of fieldwork. But what's most important about the story is that it was not an isolated event. The intelligence behind the phenomena staged a series of missing time phenomena, and it matched the way in which the CE5 network had been put into the field. In 1991, a contact activist by the name of Sherry Adamak, uh, who worked with CSETI, she established a team in Denver, uh, 
Dr. Greer gave us uh, training uh, there. And so she started doing work in Denver in 1991. In September, August of 92, my team went into the field from Los Angeles. And then December of that same year, 1992, Wayne Peterson had his team trained and they started doing field work. So it was first Denver, then Los Angeles, and then finally Phoenix. What I found out after I publicized our missing time story through the network, Ron Russell, who was a space artist and he was a friend of Sherry and was in the initial contact team, he had had missing time at home a few weeks before us. He had been reviewing a book, just turning the pages at home, not drinking, not using drugs, and all of a sudden he lost an hour of time. This was a couple of weeks before us. Two or three days after us, Wayne Peterson had been in the field. He had a team of seven, and it was very cold in the desert outside of Phoenix, so they had built a fire. The fire was quite bright. They're signaling, hoping to attract a UFO. There were seven of them out there. And all of a sudden, the fire goes down. It's almost out. And what happened? It was suddenly uh, 1 o'clock. They then walk to their vehicles, and they're standing around their vehicles looking at a shooting star here and a shooting star there. What happened? Bingo. Another hour was gone. It was now 3 o'clock in the morning. And he said, double missing time. Thank goodness we didn't freeze, because the temperature was at freezing. And you have to move around a lot. So that was a coordinated uh, demonstration of missing time that worked its way through the entire CE5 network, what I call HICE, Human Initiated Content Experiences, Mm -hmm. a better term from my perspective. And it matched the way in which the teams had gone into the field. First, Ron Russell won. If we missed that, there was two of us, Misha and I, from Los Angeles. Then finally, the Phoenix team. Seven people had double missing time, in case we were so dense that we couldn't put the pieces together. They were showing us this is what they can do. These are not random events. UFO intelligences or UAP intelligences are incredibly well prepared for these encounters. They were sending us a very clear message. Is it your opinion that you're dealing with extraterrestrials as opposed to some sort of uh, terrestrial phenomenon or even a psychokinetic projection from yourselves? Well, it's very hard to say uh, because this intelligence has such profound power uh, of telepathy, uh, illusion. They can create belief systems. Uh, it's been postulated by authors like uh, Dr. Vallée and Mr. John Keel that this intelligence has been here forever and is in the belief business. And they can stage encounters so that you and they will co-create any kind of contact experience that you imagine. With that kind of power, uh, you have to be uh, somewhat sober in when you make your pronouncements as to who and what they are. But I think from the, the credible reports from Roswell, the numerous appearances of UFOs over nuclear power stations, I'd say that there is likely uh, an extraterrestrial component. At the time, I was a true believer in the ET hypothesis, and I thought I was interacting with friendly aliens. They subsequently took me through a series of contact experiences in which they showed how they create illusion. And I developed actually what I'm going to be publishing in the second volume of Beyond UFOs, 
put out by the Foundation for Research into ET and Extraordinary Experiences, the second book, what I call the virtual experience model or theory, which outlines how UFO intelligences showed me the way in which they use illusion as a mechanism of contact. Now, you made the decision at some point to just discontinue this uh, ongoing work of human-initiated contact. What, what was the uh, reason behind that decision? So, the virtual experience model is something that I've developed in the course of my five years of intensive field work from 1992 to 1997, and then sporadic field work with various networks. I did field work with Rama four times. I did field work with independence. And this is happening all over the world. There are people... This is another reason why the term HICE, Human Initiated Contact Experience, is superior to CE5, because people in remote areas who don't have access to the Internet or won't read about close encounters of the first, second, and third kind are getting telepathic communications. They're doing the same kind of contact activity using meditation and thought projection. And they've never heard of J. Allen Hynek, who developed CE 1 through 3, or Jacques Vallée, who added 4, which, uh, you know, onboard experience. So the term human-initiated contact experience describes H-I-C-E, what it is. And so it's, and there are other reasons, for political reasons, it's, it's superior. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we were uh, doing contact work for these five years, but in the course of that journey, the intelligence behind the phenomena was showing me things in the sky that were impossible. Within the first week of my doing contact work, I was driving home from the ER uh, in the San Fernando Valley, and I'm getting onto the 405 freeway, which the joke is is the largest parking lot on the planet. <laughs> I've I've been in traffic jams on the 405, I know. The joke is, a guy comes home and says, Honey, I'm home. And his wife says, Mister, honey, you're home. You you left this house seven years ago, and I haven't heard or seen you since. And the answer was, Honey, I took the 405. (laughs) So so I was pulling onto the 405, and I see a, a wooden airplane that's no more than 15 feet long. Its wings are short and stubby. It looked like something out of World War I. It was painted fire engine red with golden lightning bolts on the fuselage. The wings were so short that there was no way this craft that was going at 45 miles an hour, no more, could be airborne. And it was at a height of less than 100 feet. It was just flying north, opposite the direction that I was about to do. And it had an open canopy. There was no windshield. And there was no pilot. It looked like a, a prop that, if you've ever gone to the circus when you're a kid, where the, the, the small people climb, like 15 clowns pour out of one of these things, you know. It couldn't possibly fly. Um, so I, I kind of was suspicious about that. Uh, then what happened uh, was in 1994, I was in f- doing field work in Joshua Tree National Monument. It was... Um, October. And one of the things you notice when you're doing field work is you look at a certain section of the sky for a few minutes, five minutes tops, you get bored, you start looking at another section of the sky. So what I discovered on this particular night in 1994 is that every time I turned my head to a different 
section of the sky, I saw a shooting star. I don't recall we were having a meteor shower at the time, but what was curious about these shooting stars is they all looked alike. They all had the same length, the same angle uh, extended to the horizon, they were the same brightness, the same color, and this happened five times in a row. Every time I turned my head to view a different section of the sky, I got the stereotypic shootings, like it was a, a video clip. When you go to the planetarium, they'll show you video clips of shooting stars, yeah. they all look the same. Yeah. So I turn to Misha and I say, uh, you know, this is really weird. It's almost like there's a consciousness link between me and the shooting stars. So he says, you want to know how many times it happened to me, Joe? I says, yeah, sure, 20 times in a row. Whoa, that same, uh, same day. Phenomena. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, there's something important going on here. That very night, we had some other unusual uh, visual displays. And I think that the, vis- the term visual display is, is, is important because... After having these contact experiences, I don't call them objects. I call them visual displays. Mm -hmm. And that's why the UAP designation is superior, unidentified aerial phenomena. Because once you call it an object, you're ruling out the possibility of holographic projections or whatever. So so, um, the following month, it's now November 1994, it's the year anniversary of that prolonged interaction I had where we encountered the jumpers and Misha dismissed the UFOs at the end and we got sunburned at night. And we're hoping for a repeat performance, kind of like one year anniversary. And not much is happening in the sky. Oh, we see... Um, some unusual shooting stars that are doing zigzag, which shooting stars are not supposed to do. On one, we see a shooting star go down and then go up. It's possible they can bounce off the Earth's atmosphere, but it's a very unusual visual display. Uh, And we're standing shoulder to shoulder, looking to the south. Behind us is the Queen Mountain, going up another 1,600 feet. We're at 4,000 foot elevation. And we're looking at Negri Hill, which is a, a, a prominence of 600 feet between us and the circular road uh, in Joshua Tree National Monument. And we're staring at the same section of sky above Negri Hill, and he says, oh, there's another one. And I had seen nothing. Hey, there's another one, he says. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I just saw a shooting star right over there. And I said, where? And he, I, I looked down his arm like, barrel of a gun. He says, right there, there's another one, three in a row, and I don't see anything. So because they, and I said to him from the, our previous experience, I said, were each of these shooting stars alike? He says, yeah, same brightness, same location, same angle, same color. It's like a repeat of what we experienced the previous month. Yeah. So my heart starts beating because I'm realizing this is showtime, show and tell. So I say, uh, Misha, whoever is doing this, could you ask them to show me? He says, show Dr. Burks. And like that, immediately I see a shooting star appear above Negri Hill. And I say, was that like the other three that you had seen? He says, exactly like it. And now my heart's beating even more. And I'm thinking, this is really important. I said, ask them to show me again. He says, show Joe. And like that, in the same location stereotypic meteor display. 
same angle, same brightness, exactly like the other one. Now I'm, I'm feeling like so excited my legs are shaking because I realize this is demonstrating how they use the power of illusion. One person is seeing it, one person is not. And this would explain the countless, countless accounts of UFO witnesses, one person describing a phenomena and others not being able to see it. And then them arguing among each other and saying, well, you made it up, you know. So, I kind of make a little speech. I'm feeling awkward because it's just Misha and I out there. And I say, well, whoever you guys are, I know, I know you're friendly, but we have this thing called coincidence on earth. And people will say, you know, Dr. Burks is a good ER doctor. He takes care of his patients. He knows his stuff. He can make sure that they make it alive till, at least till the next day in the ICU. But when it comes to astronomy and shooting stars, he doesn't know his uh, backside from his elbow, you know. <laughs> And could you please, one more time, two is good, don't get me wrong, but one more time, please. And there was a pause, it was a pregnant pause. It was like saying, Burks, don't you know what we're doing? Five seconds go by, whereas the others were just like that. Yeah. Ten seconds, finally, ten, fifteen seconds later, a pale shooting star appears, exactly like two others I saw and the five others that Misha reported. So from this contact experience and others, I developed what I call the virtual experience model. And a subsequent contact experience that happened on the phone demonstrated some of the technology that is possibly used to stage these kinds of illusions. Contact experience on the phone? In July of uh, 1995, um, I'm on the phone with Misha. It's a Saturday night. Um, we're both off duty. And what, of course, are we talking about? We're talking about UFOs. And one of the recurrent themes was our wives were not terribly supportive in our work. Um, he had married that Ukrainian beauty. Uh, and uh, so... It's one of the risks for anybody involved in this field. Yes. Is, uh, how is your spouse going to respond? Right. Well... His wife, I uh, won't mention her name, but she had had a sighting and, and then several in his company. So her interest had increased. But my wife had not had a sighting at that point. Uh, and she used to call the so-called aliens the whatevers. Mm. And she said, if the whatevers want to get my attention, they'll land in my garden. Okay, so she didn't want to have, and you know, she was fearful because here I was a hardcore materialist for 41 years, you know, involved in science, political cause, and all of a sudden now I'm meditating, I'm going all, well, all over the Southwest at that point, and then subsequently I traveled and did contact work in other countries. She was fearful that there was a major change that was going to happen that will prevent me from earning the big income to pay for the beautiful house that we had in West Los Angeles. So she was a little concerned. So we were talking about our wives and the situation. And uh, all of a sudden, while I'm on the phone with Misha, he says, oh my gosh, there's something happening. And what he described was lights flickering on and off on the ceiling, and they were slowly rotating. He said, it looks like a galaxy, Joe. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I'm on the phone with him, so maybe this is another staged event. The um, holographic projection, 3D, of the galaxy with little lights flickering on, then coalesced to form the face 
of an extraterrestrial, one particular being, call, he called Zen, that he stated he had an ongoing relationship all the way back to Mother Russia, or Belarus, when he was a teenager. He had been having recurrent onboard experiences. What he imagined were, the, were such. Uh, and he says, oh my gosh, he's smiling at me. And then he says to me, Joel, uh, I'm crying, I'm crying. Well, this guy, Misha, was not very emotional. And I had the presence of mind to say, are you crying or are, is, are your eyes tearing? And he said, you're right, it's the, um, the, my eye is tearing, but it was only one eye. So I said to him, close your eyes, Misha. What happens? He closed both eyes and he could still see the three-dimensional uh, projection. And what I imagine they were showing me, because I am a physician, I know the optic nerve is at the back of the eye, and if you put enough uh, radiation into the eye, it can irritate uh, the uh, tear ducts and trigger uh, tearing. So they were showing me how they can actually use some kind of energetic technology to that will have a physical effect in terms of the tearing of the eye associated with the brain organizing a three-dimensional uh, image that he perceives as physically there, but it may be holographic or some kind of advanced technology. What was special about this encounter was that at the same time, another man who I was in communication with uh, was uh, planning to join our contact team. He was a wealthy businessman, uh, and he uh, had been a I'll call him Richard. And Richard had been an, an Air Force brat growing up. And he actually knew the son of uh, Sheridan Cavett, who was one of the uh, CIC officers, uh, counterintelligence corps at Roswell, New Mexico. So he, Joe Cavett, uh, was his childhood buddy. They both were Air Force brats, and they had spent a lot of time together because they had been in, uh, I think they knew each other in, when they were, both their dads were scheduled, were, were working in Greece. And so, uh, Sheridan Cavett was the, uh, CIC guy who refused to cooperate with investigators. Uh, he made up all kinds of stories and excuses, and basically, he wouldn't reveal that he was one of the men who had removed the wreckage and was actually with, I believe, um, um, Jesse Marcel Sr. Mm. Okay. So this businessman who was interested in our contact work had reestablished communication with his childhood buddy Joe. And this businessman who was an aspiring writer said to his friend Joe, look, let's meet in Las Vegas, get together. And we can talk about perhaps a book project where your dad will tell you the inside story of Roswell. You won't write it up or to talk about it until he dies, so he won't be violating his security oath. And then we could produce something really interesting. So while I'm talking to the phone on Misha, he's in the ISIS hotel with his friend Joe Cavanagh talking, and you know, they're in a suite. He's in his own room, Joe's in the other. And Three hours after I had my conversation with Misha, uh, Richard um, subsequently reported that he looked up on the ceiling and he saw the um, light, the smoke detector signal which flashes go out. And then around the smoke detector, he saw lights flickering on and off like a galaxy rotating. He had the same stereotypic visual display. Well, 
It was the same as, as the one that Misha had described to me on the phone several hours later. Apparently, Richard was a previous contact experiencer. He recognized the presence of non-human intelligence. He said to me, I can't, I couldn't handle that. And then he described passing out. Mm. So the UFO intelligence had staged, if I had any doubts about Misha's credibility, which I did, um, because he said things that were pretty amazing and wasn't sure how true they all were, uh, but the intelligence behind the phenomena found someone who did not know Misha. They operated totally different circles. There's no way they could have worked together to fool Dr. Joe Burks and staging this as a stunt. Uh, it was some time before Richard actually did get to meet Misha, Misha and during the course of field work. They were not collaborating to fool me. So, so what I was shown was the mechanism of contact, which I call a virtual experience, uh, of the first kind, which is a virtual sighting. It's either a holographic projection, in which case everybody can see it, or it's a projection that's directed uh, energetically into the uh, optic centers of the brain to create not a hallucination, which is the result of a disease process. We're not hallucinating. You hallucinate if you're, you're ingesting chemicals, if you're, you're, you're in shock and have high fever, or if you have a thought disorder like schizophrenia. These are not hallucinations. These are technologically mediated illusions. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so this is very important, and it has radical implications for the entire UFO subculture. Because if this intelligence can do what they showed me, the, every time you see a shooting star that acts anomalously, maybe it's not a shooting star. Every time you see what you imagine is a structured craft, maybe a holographic projection. And I'm not saying that all UFOs are illusions. No, some are definitely very physical, picked up on radar, physical effects. What I'm saying is that some, many, but not all, could be employing the mechanism that I describe. Now, of course, when I started to put this forward, I, I became very lonely because my contactee friends who imagined that every anomalous light in the sky was friendly ETs saying, do you mean these are just projections that this isn't, you know, ET? And I said, well, I don't know. And of course, when I tell people in MOOF on that, they spent the last, well, it's be 50 years this year, uh, 50 year celebration of the founding of MUFON. When I tell them about this, and they've focused on sightings as if they were an engineering problem, and they, and they talk about the, what they imagine are the propulsion systems, the materials, and they describe in such tremendous detail the parameters of the sightings, I'm suggesting that maybe for the last 50 years, they've been chasing shadows. Yeah. So I got kind of lonely when I started to put this forward. Um, but my reading of the UFO literature led me to other uh, mechanisms along the same line. And, and the virtual experience model describes a virtual experience of the first kind, virtual sighting, which you perceive as an object, as no object, it's a visual display technologically mediated illusion. A virtual experience of the second kind is a full sensory experience that it occurs in an altered state, kind of like along the lines of what was fictionally portrayed in the movie Matrix. In fact, people refer, contactees refer this to this kind of experience as a Matrix reality that's as real as what you and I are experiencing right now doing this interview or people watching it. And yet, 
is where the consciousness is, is taken away from its usual environment. People don't go anywhere physically, but have a staged theater of the mind event, uh, which is convincingly real, and they come out of it thinking, I've been on board spacecraft, or I've been abducted. Now, this doesn't mean that some people aren't physically taken on board, of course. You have the amazing example of what happened to Travis Walton. Uh, he was injured, he was physically removed, his team came back, he was no longer there, he emerged healed several days later. So we know uh, people go on board, or well, they have memories of going on board spacecraft, and there's circumstantial evidence to strongly suggest that these are physical events. But what I'm suggesting is that many people who claim that they're abductees, which is by definition victims of a criminal act, they uh, don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And what I'm suggesting, an alternative term, which is not as exciting for Hollywood in terms of scary movies, I'm saying that this could be UPI, unsolicited psychic interaction. Mm. So the ETs are making UPI. UPI, <laughs> not like what our yeah. parents used to describe lovemaking as whoopee. Uh, I think as a parapsychologist, that makes good sense. I mean, this field uh, really is very ripe for parapsychological and psychological and, and neurological uh, studies. So I'm presuming when you came to this realization, uh, you decided to discontinue the uh, uh, contact efforts. I did the work for five years intensively. There were um, unfortunate, uh, you know, there was surveillance, um, mm -hmm. which I didn't particularly bother me because I was convinced uh, that what we were doing was correct. I imagined then, as I imagine now, that what we are doing is extension of brotherhood and sisterhood made large. We are a, a social movement that's in its incipient form. But the slogan, one planet, one people, one universe, one people, is what we celebrate, okay? So I was quite a confidence, I was quite confident of the righteousness of our cause, and if people want to follow us around, but I, I started getting threatening phone calls. Um, there were people calling with a military bearing who were telling me it would be better for me if I got out of this uh, contact work, and they wanted me to break associations with the network. Um, there were other political ramifications that had to do with the disclosure project that I was peripherally involved in, which we won't have time to get into, and it's not apropos. But for a number of reasons, basically, I decided to stop doing contact work. I was in the height of my career. I had young children who I wanted to live. I wanted to live long enough to see them go through college. I wanted to pay for it, so I I, I chose to to resign. But I I, I felt ashamed because I was afraid and I felt terribly defeated. So I did get back into it a couple of years later, but not in its most intense form. And uh, in 2000, uh, in uh, I mentioned that contact experience. I may have given the date wrong. When I was with Jeannie on the road, that was in 2008. 2008. Yeah, not, not 1998. 2008. So I had that uh, experience where we were warned uh, to get off the road. Mm -hmm. So I still was doing some contact work in the, in the years later, but it was no longer with the CE5 network. Uh, I was working with Rama, the Peruvian and Latin American contactees, who were very generous and welcomed me, you know, to their, to their field work. Well, Dr. Joseph Burks, this has been a fascinating discussion. I have a feeling we could go on for several more hours that 
uh, you have a wealth of experience and uh, I look forward to future opportunities to dig into this more with you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you.